China is a country of greater faith diversity than most Westerners understand. This episode's guest has literally written the book on the spiritual revolution in Chinese society. How Ian Johnson came to report on religion in one of the most dynamic nations in the world. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. As a historian and a Christian, I've been fascinated by the story of religion in China for years. In American newspapers, you often get a one-dimensional sense that Chinese society reflects its government, which is officially atheistic. A few years ago, I came across reporter Ian Johnson's book called The Souls of China that entirely reframed my understanding. In fact, Ian writes that China is in the midst of one of the world's great spiritual revivals, including the growth of Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, and other faiths. We were fortunate enough to recently host Ian at Upper House, where he talked about this spiritual revival. I encourage you to go watch that talk, linked in the show notes. In this interview with Ian, I wanted to learn more about his background, his development as a world-class journalist, and to understand what makes him tick. We sat down to talk about his story of writing about China and being a foreign journalist there for years, as well as his take on the evolution of spirituality in China. Ian Johnson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, researcher, and senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's authored multiple books, including his newest book, The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Ian Johnson. Anyway, okay, so we can, we can just go ahead, and I'd love to start just by asking you um, about your upbringing, uh, who your parents were, and sort of um, what got you sort of uh, interested in becoming a journalist. Right. So I was born in Montreal, Canada, and spent the first 15 years of my life there before we moved to the United States. Um, and uh, later I naturalized, became a U.S. citizen. When I was growing up, uh, religion played a, a fairly big role in my family. My mother was a regular churchgoer and took us to church and we went to Sunday school. Um, my father in those early years, didn't go to church very much. For him, Sunday was the one day when he got away from the kids, and mm. so he would use that time to fix the house. Later, <laughs> he became uh, more active in the church uh, when he had a bit more time, and when we, especially when we moved to Florida, then he um, became like a treasurer of the church. My mother was a warden, and you know was always active in helping and church things, and was a Sunday school teacher and so on. So for me, religion was sort of a normal part of life. It wasn't um, an overwhelming thing, but it was something that we that was a part of our, our of our daily life. And I think that affected my interest or inf created an interest in me about what other people in other parts of the world thought, what they believed in. Um, I, I knew. People in China obviously had different faiths as well, mm. but when I went to China, I was I was interested in those questions. So I think it woke in me that kind of that area of interest. Yeah. So, do you mind sharing what what type of Christianity did you grow up in? So in in Canada, it's Anglican, and yeah. here it's Episcopalian. Okay. Yeah. 
So, so the the move from Montreal to to Florida that must have been particularly at fifteen a pretty uh, stark difference. Um, what what do you remember about that move? What what struck you as most distinct about Florida? <laughs> well, initially it was I felt I was imprisoned in a suburb <laughs> because in Montreal you could take a bus and go places and, mm-hmm. and and go and go around the city, and when you're in a suburb in in North Tampa, you can't get anywhere without a car. Mm. And so initially it was like, I need to get my learner's permit and, and get a driver's license as soon as possible. Um, and then, I mean, but that was just a sort of, you know, initial youthful sort of thing. I, I think it was also for, for me a little bit liberating because I had um, never been a very good student in school in Montreal. And when I got to uh, Florida, my Guidance counselor said, "Oh, the schools in Canada are good. I'll I'll put you in the AP classes." And that actually was like me and an A. I didn't even know what AP was, but mm. it turned out to be nice because it, it helped me gain in confidence. And I found it was um, in some ways sort of liberating. Um, Canada. I grew up in Montreal, as I said, Montreal, which is the French speaking in the French speaking part of Canada, and it was really consumed with language wars and. Mm. There was one great thing that I got out of that in that starting in grade seven, I went to a French immersion school. And so we only spoke French except for English class. And this was an effort to make the Anglophone population finally learn French. Hmm. And so it helped me understand how you learn a language. And the best way really is immersion, going all in. And so that was a good thing. But the, the, the bad thing about it was that it was a place really wrapped up in these sort of almost 19th century battles over religion and not, yeah, but in some ways religion, because it was Catholic versus Protestant, the right. nationalism, yeah, nationalism things, yeah. And, and very sort of inwardly focused parochial issues. Yeah. And going to Florida was sort of a, a breath of fresh air, really. Hmm. Interesting. You know, one, one thing that might, uh, I think of the U.S. is often known as a very religious country in comparison to other Western countries. Is that something you notice that Wow, I've I've just entered into a much more religious society, or maybe also in the suburbs. Maybe those are tend to be pretty uh, religious as well. But um, I don't know. Did, did you notice anything different on the religious scene? Well, not initially. I don't think. Uh, later, when I lived longer in the in the U.S., uh, I began to see the role of religion being greater. Um, but I we we immediately went to. The local church and was sort of involved there, so it didn't seem like that big of a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, obviously, you become very interested in China as a area of of study. How did that come about? What what drew you to China in particular? Well, I think there were two things. One was maybe the background in Canada when I got to went to the University of Florida in in Gainesville, and there was a language requirement. I think I was going to at that point I was going to be a history major. I think. And mainly I wanted to do journalism and the University of Florida had a good journalism program and a good student newspaper. And so that's why I went there. Um, and there's a language requirement. I thought, I'm not going to take another European language. I'm certainly not going to take French. I don't want to take Spanish or something. I'll try something different. Hmm. And this is back when there were literally bulletin boards and teachers would put things up and a, a teacher was saying, looking for students to fill out a section in introduction to Chinese. And my father was transferred to Florida because he was working for a big Hong Kong company. They had bought a real estate company in Montreal. And also because of the political turmoil there, they moved it to their North American operations. They moved from Montreal to Tampa. 
And he was going though to Hong Kong, mm. one, you know, once in a while. Um, and I think that also got me interested in Asia. And I thought as a lark, I'll take Chinese as my language requirement. I thought I'd just do it for a year. But I had a wonderful teacher from Taiwan, uh, Chan Si Chu, and he was just a great teacher. And it's one of those things where you just hit the teacher and you, you encounter this teacher and they um, change your life kind of. And he yeah. made Chinese fun and interesting. And so I thought I'd take another year. And then before you know it, you have a lot of credits. And so I changed my major to um, Asian studies. And I made an interdisciplinary degree in Asian studies and journalism. And then I realized I wasn't really going anywhere. This is also maybe an impact from having grown up, grown up in Canada because I wasn't in an immerse, immersive experience learning Chinese and I needed to go to China. So uh, the University of Florida had an exchange program through some other organization with Peking University. So I went to Peking, to Beijing in 1984. And then I realized, boy, my Chinese is really terrible. But as I knew, I knew I wanted to, but I knew I wanted to to learn it pro properly. So that's what I did. Peking in in 1984. That must have been an interesting. I mean, that's just a you know a decade after any type of official relations between China and the U.S. Uh, you know became a reality. Was it what, what was it like to be in Peking in in 1984? Yeah, it was not even then. I think relations were only normalized in 1979. So it had been oh, that's five right. I was, years. I was thinking of Nixon's visit yeah, Nixon's to China. Yeah, Nixon's visit, in, right? But early yeah, 70s. And it yeah. took a little bit of time. And then, that's right. Yeah. Um, it was only uh, eight years after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And right. um, it was only six years after economic reforms had started. So there were street markets where farmers could sell their products on the side. And you could see this thing starting to gather pace. Mm. But it was still very much um, a bicycle city mm -hmm. uh, with big uh, smoke belching buses and a very rudimentary subway system, just two lines, really lousy kind of Soviet era, more built, I think, as bomb shelters than anything else. Mm. Um, and you, they had single speed cast iron bikes that were really heavy called flying pigeons. And you <laughs> rode those around town. If you wanted to go to the Forbidden City you, and the university district is sort of far out of town, you rode kind of five, six miles on this old bike. And it took you, you know, like, like an hour or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's a really different experience, but it was good because I could see where China had come from. And that was, it, I think it's important to keep that in mind sometimes when thinking about the country today. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, another aspect of, um, I, I, I feel like we're going through sort of your college years here. Um, uh, is, is journalism. Uh, you mentioned you came in maybe as a history major or interested in history. What, what about journalism attracted you? Was it just sort of the opportunity to, to get right in and sort of uh, understand other cultures? Or was there something about writing that interested you? Yeah. So at the high school, I ended up um, doing well in social sciences. And I, a number of teachers said to me, you should think of journalism. Mm. And I worked at the you know high school yearbook and stuff like that. And the uh, University of Florida had a really good, I think it's still a, a good student newspaper. And so they, that was one reason. I think I just was curious about writing and learning other people's lives. But the, the funny thing was when I got there, the foreign editor of the Washington Post, Karen DeYoung, she gave a, a speech there and she said, don't study journalism. She said, journalism is uh, a trade. You learn it by doing primarily. Mm. You can take some classes um, but don't just take journalism. You should, 
you learn writing really by doing it, by having a good editor and writing and writing and writing and having it improved and improved. It's almost like that 10,000 hour rule where right. if you want to really master something, you have to just put in the time. I think writing, a lot of it is like that. I took some excellent classes at the uh, J school, but they were primarily law of mass communications, uh, ethics course, and things like that, rather than you know, reporting 101 or, or something like that, which you know, can be useful. But for, for working at this school newspaper, they even paid, a, they paid minimum wage for us mm -hmm. to work there. Mm -hmm. So we were able, I was able actually to put myself through college by working at the school newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, so it became a big part of my life. And when I went to China in 84, 85, I ended up writing my senior thesis on American journalism in China. So I went and interviewed all the journalists who were there, talked to them, found out about their challenges, and wrote a bit about the, the history of when the journalists were expelled in the late 40s and early 50s and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Would you, would you give that same advice today to, to journalism students to not major in journalism and uh, just get it, you sort of get some 10,000 hours and start get moving on that instead? Well, I think the important thing is to have some kind of mentor situation. Mm. The worst thing, and I found this sometimes young journalists who, are, who I met in China would be writing into a void. They'd be writing an article and they'd send it off by email to some editor and they might get a yes or a no, but they had no idea why. Mm. Um, it might come out in a very... Uh, in a very different form. They didn't understand the editing process. And I think it's important, just like if we think of it as a profession, if you're a carpenter, to have a master carpenter next to you who's telling you, right. um, here's what you're doing wrong, here's how you can fix that, and, and so on and so forth, or have some kind of a figure who can help give you the feedback. And I think that's really important, probably in many fields, in many professions, not just journalism, but it, and this is a, a bit of a problem nowadays when people don't work in offices as much or everything kind of is remote mm. and done by Zoom, it, it, that hands-on experience is important where somebody at the next desk kind of shouts over at you, hurry up, I need it, or um, why, you know, and walks over and, and points out on your screen what could be done better. That's worth um, so much that that's really hard to, to duplicate, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like one of the biggest things Zoom or sort of digital um, interaction lacks is the ability to have a side conversation. Like you just can't, it's one feed, so you can't whisper to anyone on the screen. And I feel like so much of the sort of mentorship or craft learning can often be the side conversations or the things you don't actually want to ask the whole groom. You just want to ask your right. mentor or something like that. Yeah. Did you have a mentor like that when, when you entered into the profession, someone that sort of showed you the trade? Well, there was somebody who was very helpful over the years. Um, his name was Wilbur G. Landry. And um, I still call him Mr. Landry. He was quite a bit older than I was. He had been um, the world editor at United Press International mm. and was hired by the St. Petersburg Times in, um, in Florida, the St. Pete Times, which is now called the Tampa Bay Times. They sort of expanded across the bay and they bought the Tampa Tribune. But they were always a family-run newspaper, and they had a very good reputation because they they put their money back into journalism as opposed mm -hmm. to into you know shareholder value or something like that. And so they'd hired this guy to be their foreign correspondent, and I'd stayed in touch with him from my college days. And later, I went to Berlin uh, just before the Berlin Wall fell, and he mm -hmm. came over. He was sort of their Europe. He spent a lot of time in Europe, so he was almost like their Europe correspondent. And I did a lot of work research for him. Mm. So in the, in, the, in the profession, you call him a fixer. Um, so I was like his fixer and translator because I spoke 
I learned German, I spoke German. And when the Berlin Wall fell, then he helped quite a lot. He helped me get into the newspaper when he couldn't be in all places at all times. So I would, he would write, say, the main story, and I would write the sidebar. And, mm. and he was very helpful in that process, um, which gave me a real leg up. Yeah, that's fascinating. How many languages do you know? You've mentioned, you've ticked off uh, German, French, Chinese, That's it. English. Okay, <laughs> That's okay. It, yeah. <laughs> well, my French is, is really the weakest. French, I haven't really learned since I was 15. I took one college class in grammar mm. or something. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the Berlin Wall in, in 1989. You were there. So I imagine uh, you, you spent many years in China, and we'll, we'll get to, to that. But between uh, your studies and your study abroad and becoming sort of stationed in China, which I gather is what happened later, what did you do in, in the sort of in-between years? Uh, after going to China, I went back, finished off my senior year, and then I got a job at the Orlando Sentinel where I had been an intern to pay off some of my college debts, frankly. And I knew, though, I wanted to go back overseas. And I threw Dr. Chu at the university. Uh, I thought Taiwan would be the best place to learn Chinese because, especially at that time, it was really hard to get a visa to the mainland. I think this is actually becoming the case again. Mm. Um, and also in in Taiwan, they learn regular characters as opposed to the simplified characters that the communists introduced after mm. 1949. And although because of the sheer population of, of China, most people obviously use simplified characters, it's a lot easier to go from regular to simplified characters. And if you want to read other texts from other eras in China, you need to know the regular characters. Right. So the simplified characters are kind of like how we will sometimes write through T-H-R-U. I mean, it's sometimes a an abbreviation like that, or or how in American English we drop the U in color, right, and things like that. Um, in some ways, simplified Chinese is like that, but it's but it's just expands to hundreds and hundreds of characters. And so, I, I, in any case, going to Taiwan, I could also teach English, and I I could live with Chinese people, which or Chinese language people, you know, uh, which you couldn't do in China at that time in the eighties. Hmm. It was really hard. So I went to Taiwan from eighty six to eighty eight. And then th I met friends who, um, <clears throat> for various reasons, I ended up going to Berlin, to West Berlin, to get my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And I got it in Chinese studies, uh, spent a year learning German, and then the Berlin Wall fell. So I was freelancing and got my master's in Chinese studies and uh, focused on Chinese economic reforms um, for mm -hmm. a couple of other reasons. But then I think I realized also that business is one of these things that people who are attracted to journalism are often interested in social sciences and they're often economically illiterate. And I saw sort of a market <laughs> opportunity in being a journalist who had some knowledge of economics and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I, I focused a bit more on Chinese economics. Um, but the whole time, the, the funny thing was, I was really interested in these religious questions, but um, that, had, that played a, a secondary role until I got to China in 1994 as a correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. Fascinating. And just a, a, a trivia point, I guess. I, we were very close in 1989. I was a missionary kid and my family was actually in Germany from 88 to 92, 93. Um, so closer than uh, That's we amazing. have been for most of our lives <laughs> to each other. But I was very young at the time. But um, my, my dad took a tour of... Um, of East Berlin sort of just a couple of weeks after it was possible to do that. And he had many stories about that. So, um, okay. So as you mentioned, you, you, um, spend a lot of time in China after 1994. Uh, and how would you describe sort of, how would you summarize your, your, uh, your, your few decades uh, over there? Like what, 
it sounds like you moved from maybe economics to to other types of reporting, religion being one of them. But yeah, how do, how do you summarize sort of that whole breadth of time in China as a reporter? Well, my interest in the 90s was um, I, I was having, for my job, I was covering a lot of economic issues, but I was really interested in religion and what Chinese believed in. And I was especially interested in China's only indigenous religion, which is Taoism or Taoism. And I thought of that as kind of a, some sort of naively, I thought of this as the Rosetta Stone for Chinese culture, because <laughs> there's so many things that come out of Taoism that you find in political philosophy and Chinese medicine and things like that. Mm. And I didn't think there were, there's a, Taoism has this weird second life in the West where it's become this esoteric, you know, go with the flow type thing. But when you see it actually practiced in China, it's a kind of a normal religion where they mm. have temples and stuff like that. So I was very interested in that um, different, w the way that religions change when they go from culture to culture. So I thought, I thought, I toyed with the idea of like trying to write something about Taoism. But then I realized that really of the religions in China, Taoism was probably the weakest for a variety of reasons. Mm. And that other religions were really on the upsurge. And so I, I then wrote about this spiritual movement called Falun Gong, mm. which came up in 99. And it was also an offshoot of traditional religious beliefs. And it um, somehow ticked off the, the Communist Party. They cracked down on it very violently and brutally. And I, I wrote about this and the police brutality used to um, shut it down. Um, and I could see that religion was moving from being something that people just practice privately in this pub, in this private space that the party had given back to people after the Cultural Revolution, and it was moving into the public sphere. Mm. And I think that's what was becoming obvious in the 1990s through this these kind of folk religious movements like Falun Gong. Um, mm. And so when I was going to go back to China, I wanted to go back, I went back to Germany and worked for a few years, but I knew I wanted to go back to China and I wanted to write a book on religion in China, but I wasn't quite sure how I would structure it. But that was my goal was to, to write about religion in China. And is that the, uh, the souls of China book? Is that? Yeah, that's yeah. what that became. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that we can stop there for a minute. And one of the things that I really liked about that book was the structure and you structured around sort of the seasons of the year, which just, um, Journalists uh, tend to be people who want to, you know, tell a story straight and um, and maybe uh, uh, particularly emphasizing sort of um, uh, facts and, and sort of how things happened. And what I got a sense from, and that is not a slight on journalists. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to say that um, what I got a sense from you is that you had something more going on there and how you structured the book like that. And may, I wonder if you just want to reflect on sort of how you think about writing about religion in China, and even down to the structure of how you present um, the stories. It's a very story-heavy book, but, um, but it is in this structure that isn't necessarily um, uh, uh, chronologically uh, ordered. Um, yeah, I wonder if you had thoughts on just how, how you think about writing about these topics in, in a way that's both journalistic, but also has some art to it as well. Yeah, that book... Uh... I, I had various ideas for writing about religion in China. Initially, as I said, in the 90s, I thought oh, I should write about Taoism. But I really began to think, as, as I went back to China, and I, I was going, attending churches, um, and I realized, but these were huge. This is this really changed. Going to a church in the 80s and 90s, 
it was often quite small. Mm. Um, there were just these official churches that the government had allowed, and sometimes they were crammed, but simply because in a big city, there'd only be like a few churches that were active. So you right. could see that there wasn't that much going on outside of official channels. Um, but what happened when I got back, I saw this explosion of big urban churches, um, which became one of the focal points of the book. And I think that that got me thinking that there were different, um, that, that there must be a way to sort of show the variety of faiths in mm. China. But I decided to focus it on ethnic Chinese people rather than all the different ethnic groups that live inside China. The reason for that was um, primarily because I didn't, I don't speak any of the Muslim languages. Mm. I can't, I couldn't spend time out there for for a variety of reasons. This is before the big crackdowns. Mm. But still, it would be difficult to interact with people. I don't like to use translators. I like to talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. I also don't speak Tibetan, mm. so I didn't want to include Tibetan Buddhism. Right. And I felt like the minority groups, it was a different can of worms you'd be opening there. It would be make it infinitely more complicated. And focusing on the elephant in the room, essentially the 91% of Chinese, of, 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 of citizens of the People's Republic of China who are ethnically Chinese, that that was enough, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'll leave the other... Or nine percent for other people, so for some, you know, for something else to do. Um, so that was, I, I think that was my thought. That was my first uh, way of limiting it. And I wanted to hit though all the major faiths that Chinese ethnic Chinese people practice. So I have five different storylines in right. the book. One of them is actually the government and its policies. I don't know, that's not a faith, but in some ways, the government promotes communism as a quasi-faith, and it has its own rituals and ceremonies, such as yeah. these party congresses and these other things. Um, and then the biggest faith in China is really Buddhism. Mm. Um, that's something that by far the majority of people practice. Buddhism slash Taoism slash folk religion, these are all, this accounts for the majority of what most people practice on on a daily level or 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 follow on some point and then christianity is i would say the most dynamic mm. of them and when i was thinking of christianity i thought um do i want to write about protestantism or catholicism mm. or both um but the problem with writing about catholicism and I, I say this ironically because I was actually teaching at a Jesuit-run school in Beijing during this time. <laughs> so I had this conversation with another a number of fathers at the time. But um, Catholicism is probably the slowest, the smallest of the of the five official faiths in China, and it also has had the most trouble and has grown the slowest. It hasn't even tracked population growth mm. from 1949 to the present. And this mm. gets into another whole series of questions about why the Pope has in. Has, has engaged in this diplomatic offensive with China to, to, right. to try to solve various problems with clergy recognition and so on. But um, Protestantism, by contrast, has exploded in numbers from roughly 1 million in 1949 to however many you want to count today, but conservatively, say, 60 million to 100 million, let's say. Right. So the question is then why? Right. And I think there... It was that was that to me was an interesting question, and the parallels maybe between that and some of the traditional faiths. Um, and then, as I began to conceive of the book, I thought of 
structuring it around one year. Mm-hmm. So this would be one in Chinese. You know, there's Chinese New Year, which begins roughly in late January, early February every year, which is the first full moon after the equinox, I believe. And so that that's the beginning of the Chinese year. And so I started it then. I start the book then, and I trace these. And I actually did this in real time. So I spent a couple of years setting it up. I knew the groups I wanted to go to. And then I actually, if, if you look at the end notes in the book, when the interviews are conducted, they're all conducted in that calendar year. Hmm. So I was going from the tomb sweeping festival in Beijing and in, or in Shanxi province, in rural Shanxi province, right to Chengdu to a big church for Easter, hmm. which has got a lot of interesting parallels about death, resurrection, and, and things like that. Um, and, and you can sometimes see these parallels in the calendar, and you can sometimes see the parallels in different faiths if you juxtapose their calendars over each other. Yeah, I didn't know about the uh, your sort of intention around when you interviewed and stuff. Just a, a point of curiosity, how are you, uh, to be blunt, how are you being funded to, to do that? Like that, that's, that's a years-long project. Um, are you writing sort of uh, reporting at the same time for magazines and uh, that's how you're sort of supporting yeah, no, yourself? Yeah, I was self-funded. I, yeah. Well, I got, I got one grant from the Open Society Institute mm. to look at religion as an important part of Chinese life and that, that kick-started the project. Mm. And then I was also working um, while I was doing this. I was writing for the New York Review of Books, um, the New York Times. I was a freelancer. I was accredited through the New York Times. So I had a journalist card, a journalist ID, and a journalist visa, which is a in China a very useful visa to have because it's a multiple entry, one-year visa. Hmm. And as a journalist, they expect you to ask sensitive questions. So it wasn't like I was there as an English teacher and having to pull my punches because if I went and interviewed this pastor who was under surveillance, I might get in trouble. I mean, the, the Communist Party sort of expects you to do that. If you're a, a, a nasty foreign journalist, you right. should be digging around and, <laughs> and things like that. So I, I, it gave me a lot of freedom to go and talk to people even people who are, you know, in a sensitive position or something like that. And I, I, I tried out different people, you know, different, as I tried out different people, I, <laughs> I went to different communities, for example, in the church. I didn't just go to Chengdu and just randomly find early rain. Mm. I went, I had several that I'd, you know, investigated. And I went to Hunan, which is often called the, the, the Galilee of China or something like this. Mm. And um, there's a really great book that was published gosh, it must be almost 20 years ago, by David Eichmann called Jesus in Beijing. And he Hmm. spent a lot of time in Henan with these rural churches. But I thought, you know, China's urbanizing at a huge rate. And these churches are often shrinking because the population's leaving. They're all going to the big cities. And so I went to those areas and talked to some of these very charismatic, autodidact priests, pastors who were just amazing characters. They were real characters. But as, as colorful as they were, it, it didn't really tell the story, I thought, of of contemporary Christianity. And it was the same with uh, looking at some different Buddhist groups and so on. I wanted to find groups that were representative of where Chinese people were today, rather than some historical look at their faith. Right. That makes sense. So you, you mentioned Early Rain, which is this uh, Christian group that you wrote a lot about in the book and have reported on since. And I think for a lot of listeners, they're probably wondering just how to think about Chinese Christianity and its relationship, particularly to Western 
uh, churches or, or traditions. I mean, even Protestant Catholic, those are sort of, uh, those have roots in, in Europe and, and the West. How do you think about Chinese Christianity? Is it, and I know this is part of the sort of narrative of maybe the government is that it's a Western import or it's, or it's sort of deeply connected to uh, Western countries. Um, I gather that's not exactly the case. Um, but uh, yeah, how do you think about that connection? Well, I try to reflect what Chinese people think. And so mm. when I talk to Chinese Christians, they say, yes, it came from somewhere else, but it also is not a European religion either. It came from the Middle East right. and it was brought to Europe and then it was brought to North America and people brought it to China. But it's uh, in that sense, it's uh, a foreign religion in Europe as well, if you want to mm -hmm. <laughs> go back uh, mm -hmm. you know, a couple thousand years or, or 1500 years or something like that. So I, I think that that's how they see it. And that's, that's also my view. And actually, when you look at the history of Christianity, and that would be the one thing that was really interesting about the Catholic Church is it has such a long history. But it, right, since yeah. Matteo Ricci was there and set up the first uh, church in, I believe, 1601, there's been a permanent Christian presence in China. So for over 400 years, um, that's almost maybe longer, than, it's almost <laughs> as long as Christianity has been in the United States, right? right. So, um, you know, saying it's a foreign religion is true only in a sort of narrow pedantic sense. Buddhism is a foreign religion by the same right. token. Right, right. Came from India by these uh, proselytizing monks who came along the Silk Road and, and, and spread it into China. Um, so these things, religions spread around the world. I don't think of it as a foreign religion. I think, you know, there were efforts by people to proselytize by, by foreigners that didn't work. There were efforts in the 19th century to make it simply, to, to offer a lot of things. Famine relief was often tied, or, or medical care was often tied to conversion or things like that. That created these so-called rice Christians who mm. converted maybe just because they were getting something out of it. And then when crackdowns happened or there was difficulty, a lot of those people just left. Mm -hmm. But the people who stayed, I think, were and, and, and who created this, this bedrock, this foundation that has led to this revival and, and a huge growth, not just a revival, but this huge growth over the past few decades, that was the result of a lot of hard on-the-ground work and one-on-one -on -one work and, and no set of magic bullets like offering some fancy um, thing or some benefit, uh, as, as happened often in the 19th century. Those efforts maybe gave Christianity a bad name uh, mm. to some Chinese because it was seen as part of this imperialist project. Some missionaries had special privileges. They were not accountable to Chinese law. They had this sort of extraterritoriality. Um, and that created some resentment, which you still find among some Chinese people, but mm. which I think the Communist Party misuses to say that the Christians today are a product of that. That's really not the case. Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain it at all. So on that, why, um, if you could just spell it out for us, what are, what is the political implication of Christianity for the Chinese government? Like why, why is there such a concern to suppress or crack down or even uh, eradicate? Uh, I don't know. If maybe that's too strong of a word. But what's the what's the threat um, to the to the government? Well, I think it's it's a there's a few things going on. One is. The government is wary of any organizations that have overseas ties or links. Mm. And so over the, the past decade, they've cracked down on NGOs of any kind. 
um, even you know environmental NGOs and, and and feminist NGOs and so on. Anything that gets some foreign funding or has some foreign ties or trainings or workshops they don't like. So that applies to both of the Abrahamic religions that are uh, active or, or strong in China, um, Islam and Christianity. Um, Islam we can leave to the side for a moment, perhaps, because it is primarily a minority religion. Mm. Ethnic Chinese don't really follow Islam. It's primarily practiced among the Uyghurs and um, the Hui. Uh, these are two large ethnic groups that practice um, Islam, and they're, they're in border regions. I think what's unique or maybe especially troubling to the party is that Christianity is practiced by Chinese people. Mm. So it is a it is uh, the first faith since Buddhism, if you want to be dramatic, a couple mm. thousand years ago, that's made significant inroads and had found a permanent presence in China, in, in Chinese culture and society. So that is a challenge to the party's efforts to recreate this kind of tr quote-unquote traditional culture, where they say all Chinese f follow some kind of amalgam of uh, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, folk beliefs, mm. uh, filial piety, all of these things that the party imagines that it can kind of control. Mm. Um, and if you want to think of a parallel, you can think of it as Vladimir Putin tries to misuse the Orthodox Church, right. perhaps f to legitimize his rule. The Communist Party over the past decade has been trying to recreate this traditional world elements of it, of course, because traditional Chinese culture had room for dissent and for people with different views, but they want to uh, simplify it and, and make it something that they can use as a tool. Christianity doesn't fit into that. Right. So it's a challenge to them. And then there are, of course, foreign ties, or there have been foreign ties. There have been many pastors in China have gone abroad to seminaries to study and go back. Um, and, and all of these things, I think, are worrisome to the party. Yeah. So, um, sort of zooming up to the to the present. So, in your book, and and that book, uh, The Souls of China, was published in 2017, I think. So we've got five years uh, since then. Uh, it's clear that Xi Jinping, the the current uh, president of China, has a particularly. Would you say he has a, a sharper concern about religion in China than previous leaders, or has it been a sort of consistent uh, concern. He has ratcheted up uh, control over all aspects of society yeah. over the past decade. Uh, that started before him, but he has put in place new religious regulations and rules that you could see as an extension of things that were brewing mm. in the 2000s. But because of the nature of his uh, rule, he's very you know, much more hands-on, powerful, a leader who can get things done in a way that his predecessor couldn't, I think he's really come down harder on Christianity. You can look at also, there could be some biographical reasons for that. When he was the party secretary in one of the provinces in southern China near Shanghai in Zhejiang province, there was a, a big independent church that they tried to close down unsuccessfully. Mm. Um, there was the, the, the police were repulsed in efforts to sort of close the church. It created this big standoff. And I think he probably feels that religion, and especially Christianity, is sort of a, a problem that he has to deal with. 
um, even in this symbolic way that they went through this one part of of of, of Zhejiang Province about uh, I don't know six seven years ago now, where they cut the crosses off the tops of churches hmm. because there were so many churches in this area, especially around this one city called Wenzhou, and in the countryside around it, um, that they they were you know they put big red crosses on top of these buildings uh, to signify that it was a church. Not that unusual, but there were so many crosses um, when you would. In fact, I can remember driving into Wenzhou from the airport and it had this elevated highway, you know, a couple story up or something. You look down over the buildings and you'd see all these crosses. And I don't <laughs> think that's the kind of cityscape that he wants right. to see. Yeah. So they went, they just cut all the crosses off these buildings, hundreds, you know, mm. and it was sort of this crazy um, effort. But it was, and that was an, an early shot across the bow of of un. This unregistered Christian movement. Because I think it's important to, to to clarify that there's the registered, the official Christian churches that are part of the government-run ministry, but and they're not necessarily bad people, but they are definitely working for the state. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are the unregistered churches, of which Early Reign is one example, and which is where the real dynamism has been over the past few decades. Right. So the you know, religion, it, broadly speaking, um, you know, answers some really basic questions to, or people are gravitate toward it for basic questions, but who, who am I? Why, why was I created or what is my purpose? What does it mean to have a soul to, to borrow the, your book title? Is that, I'm just trying to get a sense of from the, the government's perspective, do they think they have answers to those questions? Should the, should people not be asking those questions? Like those are aside, um, or do they, or do they have a, a ver do they have answers to those questions, and they just prefer you you answer it their way and not the Christian way or the Muslim way or the the Buddhist way? Um, I guess it, it's almost like what is the uh, assumed anthropology uh, of the communist government or something of of people and what they what questions they should be asking? And uh, I think we often assume in the West and maybe in in Christian space in particular that. Every human has these questions, and they need answers to them. Um, how did the Chinese? How does the Chinese government see that? Do they see the same thing? Yeah, I think they they realize that people have spiritual needs. One of the uh, Mao, when he took power in 1949, he set up a system of these five recognized faiths in China, but then quickly cracked down on that and for 20 years there was nothing that was allowed basically except for Maoism. Mm. After the Cultural Revolution, they allowed these five faiths to come back. I think they thought it would die out um, in this typical sort of modernist approach that as people got more prosperous, they wouldn't go to church as much and they wouldn't go to or have any religious interest. It would die out a natural death. It's maybe like a secularization thesis. It was a secularization yeah. theory, yeah. So it was yeah. very clearly that was their idea. You can see these in documents that they released in the 1980s um, is basically let's open the temples and the churches for the little old ladies who still go there. But when they die out, that'll be the sort of end of it. But what shocked them, I think, was that young people began to go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that they're still kind of okay if you want to go to church for 60 minutes a week, and that's the extent of your religious experience. You want to go and sort of punch in, punch out. Um, they provide that mm -hmm. in the state-run churches. Uh, and they re realize that people have ethical questions. They promote ethical thinkers, but in a more secularized way. There's a famous Neo-Confucian thinker from the Ming Dynasty, so say roughly 500 years ago, Wang Yangming, 
And if you look up Wang Yangming, there's like a, a big Wikipedia entry which can give you all of his ideas. But he was a very interesting person, and he had the idea that all individuals have a conscience, and you're born with a conscience, and you know right from wrong, um, and you have to to act on your conscience. And he's actually paradoxically to me, he's one of Xi Jinping's favorite philosophers. Hmm. Um, he just thinks the right should be what the Communist Party <laughs> right. decides is right, and yeah. you should then act on it. You should know it. Um, I don't think he's actually sort of thought through the implications of this. Yeah. But they promote these people. I mean, they have a Wang Yangming theme park in southern China in this area where he achieved enlightenment. It's sort of really hmm. weird. <laughs> um, there's even you know real estate development outside after Wang Yangming. It's typical sort of weird uh, way that, that the party mixes business with ideology and yeah, yeah i think this makes it though not that credible for a lot of people mm. like you see through when you think okay wang yangming is a famous figure and he really did achieve enlightenment in these cage, caves in far far southern china when he was in exile away from the court it's it's an interesting story when mm. you read it but when you see what the party's done with it turn it into a theme park and then you've got these horrible apartments outside and luxury condos and i mean you just think how can you take that seriously, I think, for yeah. a lot of people? You know, this is the sense I get talking to people. Or even the communist heroes. They still have these communist heroes, like this guy Lei Feng. He was a selfless screw in the machine who was just going to work and do good. And the whole story is kind of bogus when you look at it. He was sort of an illiterate farmer, but somehow he kept this amazing diary, which was written really good standard Chinese. And there was always a photographer nearby who took these amazing, clearly staged photos. Yeah. This is the 1960s when nobody <laughs> had cameras in China. Um, and when you think about it for more than 10 seconds, you realize this is fake, right? right you right. can't take that seriously. So people are looking elsewhere. And I think the traditional faiths, including Christianity, are they do provide answers. to Right. Well, let's end on this question. I, I know you're not a, uh, a prophet or a prognosticator, but if with your deep knowledge of of China and and up to date knowledge, what what are you looking for on the religious front in China in the next you know few years? Is there um, is it sort of a continuation of these trends that we've seen the growth of of these these religions and government suppression? Is that what you see on the horizon, or do you see anything else on the horizon? Well, in terms of um, Christianity, I think it's going to be a move away, and I think we've already seen this, a move away from these mega churches such as mm -hmm. Early Rain, which had five or 600 people coming to services over a, the course of a Sunday morning, and, and it had a whole ecosystem of kindergartens and seminaries and mm -hmm. bookstores and all this kind of thing, a move back more toward the original house church models because mm -hmm. that's harder for the government to control and the government can kind of accept that. But you find them also linked digitally. So people even early reign and some of the other churches, they have small groups, but they're still sort of linked. And sometimes the pastors, the, the chief pastor will issue a sermon that's then sent out that people will watch in the, in the living room or whatever. And I think right. we'll probably see more of this, which was actually the way Christianity was up until relatively recently and probably during its greatest growth was mm. in, in that model. So... I don't think it necessarily affects the growth of religion. I think it just forces it to become a little more creative. Uh, I think with people becoming better educated, more prosperous, you know, some people are going to use that free time and prosperity simply to buy cars and, 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 and more stuff. But just like in any society, people will be looking for 
answers to questions. And I think religion will still provide that. Great. Well, thank you, Ian. Thank you for sharing about your uh, background and for uh, your insight on modern China. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.